Welcome to Gateway to the Left. I am your host, Donald McBee, recording from St. Louis, Missouri. This is episode one. This show is a political podcast where I talk about topics I find interesting from a left-wing perspective. Just a warning, explicit language may be used. Since this is my first episode, I thought I'd tell my listeners what I want from this podcast. Primarily, I want to engage in outreach to not only those who are sympathetic or lean to the left, but even those who consider themselves moderate or right-leaning. I will end up pissing some of you off, but I also want to challenge people to think. I'm not a political scientist or theorist. I'm just a guy who understands where I come from and through critical thinking and examination came to socialism. Yes, I will be using the S word. It's becoming less stigmatized in the States and all for the better. However, this podcast is not affiliated with any political party or group. I will be explaining what I believe and the positions I take from a layman's perspective. I'm not going to mince words, nor am I the most diplomatic. I will talk about both social and economic issues without apology. So I've been recording my first episode off and on for the past few weeks or so. Been interrupted several times due to illness, holidays, work. Then recently I come across a Dave Rubin video about socialism that he released on January 17th. Now, I don't follow Mr. Rubin that closely, but I am familiar with him. He calls himself a classical liberal, and he hosts a show called The Rubin Report on YouTube, with such illustrious guests as Lauren Southern and Stefan Molyneux on board. Molyneux? Molyneux? Eh, whatever. He never really challenges the guest he has on the right, and I think this video explains part of why. So let's begin with the first couple of minutes of video. Don't worry, the video is only about seven minutes long, but I don't want to take Mr. Rubin out of context here. Monday was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and as is the case with almost everything lately, virtually everyone on social media seemed to parse out MLK's words for whatever narrative they're currently pushing in our modern times. Isn't that precisely what you are about to do, Mr. Rubin? Why bother pointing this out unless you think you're actually different than anyone else on Twitter? I saw articles on how MLK was the first environmentalist, how he was an ardent feminist, a communist, a socialist, and much more. The one quote I tweeted of his is perhaps his most famous. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I believe this quote to be as relevant now as it was in the early 1960s, but for a whole other set of reasons. In the 1960s, MLK was fighting for equality under the law and equality of opportunity, two things that we should all absolutely believe in. Today, those who judge people by the color of their skin and not the content of their character are fighting not for equality, but for special treatment of some at the exclusion of others. This misguided principle, thinking you should treat someone differently because of their skin color, or thinking someone should believe what you think they should believe because of their skin color or any other immutable characteristic, is the essence of prejudice, which means to prejudge. This is the complete reverse of what MLK stood for, and sadly, this way of thinking has infected the modern left almost completely. Do you know what pisses me off about how people venerate Martin Luther King Jr. today? How they only venerate a caricature of him. 
the safe part of him. The I have a dream MLK, never going into his many writings or books, his interviews, and biographies. No, Mr. Rubin has done what many white liberals have done and picked out the quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that he finds palatable and completely ignores the rest of what the man was and what the man stood for. It's an insult to Dr. King's memory. Mr. Rubin seems to be saying that Martin Luther King Jr. would be against affirmative action and even identity politics. As I was able to pull from a 10-second Google search, an excellent op-ed from NOLA.com that, that has a lot of sources that say otherwise. For example, a quote from King's book, Why We Can't Wait. Just a warning, I'm quoting from a source found in the op-ed, the language is antiquated. And I quote, Whenever the issue of compensatory treatment for the Negro is raised, some of our friends recoil in horror. The Negro should be granted equality, they agree, but he should ask nothing more. On the surface, this appears reasonable, but it is not realistic. End quote. In addition, from Stephen Oates, author of Martin Luther King Jr.'s biography, quote, A society that has done something special against the Negro for hundreds of years must now do something special for the Negro. End quote. Of course, this speaks of identity politics, affirmative action, and even reparations. The article goes into a lot further detail about each and King's arguments for them. I recommend people not only read the op-ed, but also the sourced books as well. Of course, this video from Dave Rubin is a reaction to a CNN tweet about MLK being a socialist before it's cool. Which is actually quite accurate, as quoted from King himself in 1966. Quote, there must be a better distribution of wealth, and maybe America must move toward democratic socialism. End quote. In addition, he also said in 1968, quote, It didn't cost the nation a penny to open lunch counters. It didn't cost the nation a penny to give us the right to vote. But it will cost the nation billions to feed and house all of its citizens. The country needs a radical redistribution of wealth. End quote. And before, and before people think that he only started drifting left as he got older, before he was married to Coretta Scott, he wrote this to her. Imagine you already know that I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. So today, capitalism has outlived its usefulness. It has brought about a system that takes necessities from the masses and gives luxuries to the classes. End quote. Yes, all quotes were taken from the CNN article, the point being that we can only know King today by the writings and recordings he left in life, and frankly, they paint a picture that is a stark contrast to the one-dimensional character that Dave Rubin is drawing today. This is why, like myself, so many of you find yourselves on the outside of a political bubble that you were once safely part of. For this direct message though, I don't wanna focus on the flaws of identity politics. Instead, I wanna focus on one of the other topics I just mentioned, socialism. And for the purposes of this message, I wanna put aside whether MLK was a capitalist or a communist or a socialist or a hybrid of any of them. Notice here that Dave Rubin more or less conceded the point that he doesn't even wanna make the argument as to whether Martin Luther King Jr. is a socialist or not, because he knows he is, and he knows he would lose the argument. 
Even I, through just a few minutes of Googling, was able to find numerous quotes and writings from the man himself that prove the opposite of what Reuben was claiming. What I want to discuss is some of the reaction around the word socialism itself. The amount of people I see talking about socialism positively is actually staggering. A tweet I sent out saying socialism isn't cool even got me into a little exchange on Twitter with the official verified socialist party who explained to me that socialism has actually never been tried, which is why we don't know if it'll work yet. Perhaps they should tell that to the people of Venezuela right now who are fighting for food and basic services as they watch their socialist system collapse on top of them. Ah, uh, the argument from Venezuela. Never mind the fact that socialism has little to do with the current crisis, rather that Maduro's corrupt government and, I'll be frank, the short-sightedness of Chavez's government are to blame for the economic conditions there. The problem comes down to oil. Venezuela was a huge oil producer, and Chavez's government used the profits from the National Oil Company to fund social welfare programs. Then, after the election of Maduro, oil prices collapsed, and he failed to help diversify the economy. Vox has an excellent video that summarizes the issues in Venezuela. Uh, I will put a link to that in the call notes. The most I can say about it is that it isn't a mark against socialism so much as it's a mark against trying to fund a welfare state using a volatile resource like oil. Uh, let's go ahead and continue with uh, Ruben's video. The ideas of socialism, that the means of production, distribution, and labor should be owned, controlled, and regulated by the community as a whole, are the worst sort of collectivist ideas which exist. Okay, I have to stop right here. Dave, can I call you Dave? That isn't socialism. Socialism is about workers who own the means of production. Because it's the product of that labor that they're not getting their fair share of. Okay, let's continue. Dave is about to argue against society and government in general. It's quite amusing. The very implication that the group knows what is good for the individual, that we exist to do things for the greater good, is totally antithetical to the purpose of being human. It's your job to find value in your work, to strive for more than you have, to bring good to yourself and the people around you, and to live as a free person as you see fit. The very idea that you should set aside your individuality for the community as a whole, which virtually always turns into an intolerant, hostile mob, is exactly why so many have died in socialist regimes. Dave seems to have difficulty in figuring out what he is arguing against. He fails on multiple levels here. What is society but a means for the group to try to figure out what is best for the individual? The best societies would be democratic and try to maximize our individual freedoms by balancing them with the collective needs of our society. Also, just a side note, there is no purpose to being human, but it is part of our nature to be tribal, because individual humans without a group to belong to didn't live long back in the hunter-gatherer days. He really hates groups, apparently, with no regard as to how or why they formed. So, individual workers should fight for their own benefit and not try to join together with other workers and leverage their size against employers that are much larger than themselves. I wonder if he's also against corporations. 
They are literally individuals who subsume part of their identity into a group for the purposes of producing capital for its members. Despite the obvious failures of socialism, socialists have no problem using the freedoms of capitalism against itself. This is perhaps the most perverse part of the socialist worldview. Much like Islamism, socialism wants to use our freedoms against us until it attains complete power. For example, they use the tools of Twitter and Facebook, companies created through the ingenuity of individuals and the freedom of capitalism, to attack the very system that they often live in. I find his argument here to be absurd on its face. Twitter and Facebook wouldn't exist without government backing and creating and helping to maintain the backbone of the internet and in regulating the same so that people would be free to access it from the 1980s on. Imagine how the internet would look if the TCP internet protocol was private and patented, or the or the way emails were made, or what if Berners-Lee decided HTML should have been patented. In addition, the argument that socialists shouldn't argue against capitalism while having to participate in the same system is also absurd. Critics of feudalism had to participate in that system. Abolitionists still wore cotton clothes while arguing against slavery. We are born into or raised in systems we may not agree with entirely, that doesn't mean we shouldn't attempt to change or abolish them now. By the way, I'm all for them being able to do this even if I don't like what they're doing. That's the tricky part of freedom. It even applies to people and ideas you don't like. Just think for a moment if we had a socialist government in charge right now. How do you think it would be going for free expression and free speech? How tolerant would they be of all the people that they label Nazis and bigots? Whatever you may think of Donald Trump and the evil capitalists, are they the ones coming for anyone's speech right now? Are reporters being put in jail? Actually, President Obama used the Espionage Act to put a record number of reporters in jail. And as far as I know, Trump, who dislikes the press, to put it mildly, hasn't put anyone in prison for the crime of journalism. Not sure what to say here, except that I think it's laudable that you feel that my freedom of speech shouldn't be suppressed. I shall reciprocate that sentiment. However, I don't know what socialism has to do with that directly. Pinochet's Chile was quite capitalistic, as are many countries with capitalistic economies, but many of which are also not bastions of liberty. There have also been socialist governments freely elected that have free expression and freedom of speech. You seem to be unaware that there are countries out there with robust socialist parties that are part of multi-party democracies that win some elections and lose some elections. Also, I guess you weren't aware of this, but Obama isn't a socialist. He is a center-right Democrat. A sane man, to be sure, at least compared to Trump, but what his Justice Department did with the Espionage Act isn't defendable. Also, my only defense of Trump, he's only been in a year. Give him time. Fortunately, I see a rising tide in America based on liberty, freedom, and individual choice. Note how those words themselves are somehow thought of as evil in the socialist lexicon. Liberty, freedom, and individual choice must all be sacrificed for the greater good Though what they're not telling you is that the greater good is usually for the tiny minority in the elite protected class. Um, 
Liberty, freedom, and individual choice to do what exactly? Context matters. For example, I doubt anyone agrees that society should be structured in a way that allows an individual to choose to murder someone else and have the freedom to do so. Socialists don't think these words are evil. We question what you mean by these words. They are rather vague and can be used and has been used to justify atrocities against others. What I find funny about this is that you say that socialists call for sacrificing freedom, liberty, and individual choice for the greater good, then say that only benefits a tiny minority in an elite protected class. Who is that class, Mr. Rubin? I would also like to mention that liberty, freedom, and individual choice are severely limited in a capitalistic society by economics. Many people are trapped in situations they cannot get out of due to bills, debt, medical issues, etc. that cost money. Individual choice is denied just as much, if not more, due to circumstances that for many people are outside their control. What is freedom for those who have to scramble to find enough money to eat, or have a roof over their heads, or find a means of paying for medicine that they have to consume nearly every waking hour into making enough money to take care of themselves and their families? Their ideas have never worked and will never work because a system built on stripping our humanity is in direct conflict with what it means to be human. I've said it before and I'll say it again, this perfect system which they wish to create can never be perfect because we humans, as flawed as we are, are part of it. Imperfect beings cannot create a perfect system, but what we can create is a system that always does its best to further the advancement of human freedom. For all its flaws, this is what capitalism is, which is why if you're watching this from a capitalist society, you should consider yourself one of the lucky ones. Again, with the reaffirmation that you don't know anything about human nature. You do realize we are a social species, do you not? I digress, but allow me to point out two things. First, socialism isn't perfect. In fact, there are a lot of conflicting ideas as to what it exactly involves and how to best implement it, which is a good thing. It creates variety and debate. Second, capitalism is not the best means for advancing human freedom. It is an economic system that emphasizes the private ownership and accumulation of capital. I guess we can include economics as something you are also ignorant of. Generally speaking, unfettered capitalism is impossible. The best example attempted would probably be, probably be the Gilded Age, which led to monopolies that deny individuals a choice, corruption, and many anti-freedom policies. This is an era where private companies hired others, including the U.S. Army and Pinkertons, to hunt down and kill union leaders, members, and their families. Child labor was common. There was no minimum wage. There was no maximum hours a day. There was no 40-hour work week or a weekend. Workers were exploited ruthlessly, paid very little. There were company towns, company stores. There were micro-despotic regimes within these so-called freedom-loving capitalist societies where people had very little freedom to do anything except live, work, and die on company property. Of course, in America, politicians don't outright call themselves socialists. They say that they're democratic socialists. This is Bernie Sanders' mantra as he calls for a revolution of every kind, be it political, social, or even environmental, whatever that means. 
What Bernie forgets or intentionally obfuscates is that the democratic part of this, of course, will always be tossed away as socialism takes root. It's also why there's no doubt in my mind that eventually the social justice movement will turn on Bernie himself, and I think there's already plenty of evidence of that. Democracy is the enemy of socialism, and Bernie's trying to have it both ways. There's also a reason that the social justice movement has such a socialist strain within it. Both of these movements, based on frowning on achievement and accomplishment and a resentment of those who break the mold, need people to be oppressed, or at least believe that they're oppressed, to survive. Creativity, free thought, and the pursuit of your own happiness is the antidote to both social justice and socialism. It's either that or a life of bitterness, resentment, and jealousy, which in my view is less socialism and more just antisocial. There's a bit to unpack here in this final segment, but I want to point out that you're right. Socialism is still largely a dirty word, at least among older generations of Americans, so most politicians who may lean left will still run away from the word. But socialism is not only compatible with democracy, it is a means for us to have a type of economic democracy. For all your crowing of the virtues of freedom, liberty, and individual choice, you seem to have no problem with people giving up those freedoms for a third or more of their lives working in the office, store, or factory. After all, in a capitalistic society where corporations are the norm, nearly every workplace is a despotic regime, and while you could argue that they do not have the power of life or death over their employees, I would argue that in the United States, they do when the employer-provided health insurance is the norm. I also don't understand where you come up with the idea that socialist and social justice movement frown on achievement and accomplishment. It's just that when we do have those, we would like the acknowledgement and pay that comes along with it. Also, are you seriously arguing that there is no systematic oppression of people in the United States, either politically or economically? I shall end this segment with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from an interview he did for Playboy magazine. The interviewer asks, Do you feel it's fair to request a multi-billion dollar program of preferential treatment for the Negro or for any other minority group? King responds, quote, I do indeed. Can any fair-minded citizen deny that the Negro has been deprived? Few people reflect that for two centuries the Negro was enslaved and robbed of any wages, potential accrued wealth, which would have been the legacy of his descendants. All of America's wealth today could not adequately compensate its Negroes for his centuries of exploitation and humiliation. It is an economic fact that a program such as I propose would certainly cost far less than any computation of two centuries of unpaid wages plus accumulated interest. In any case, I do not intend that this program of economic aid should apply only to the Negro. It should benefit the disadvantaged of all races. End quote. Wow. Uh, Dave Rubin seems to be a rather shallow in his thinking on social and economic issues. I may break down some more of his videos in the future. In the meantime, I wanted to do a year in review um, that basically uh, shows the highlights and low points of 2017. I will only touch briefly on each of these and may do a more critical examination of them at a future date.
So I figure I would start out by talking about the Women's March, which occurred on January 21st, 2017. It was the largest single-day protest in American history. Somewhere around 3 to 5 million people marched worldwide. I was unfortunately unable to personally participate at that time. However, I know people who did. What I love the most about this march is that it isn't a flash in the pan. The idea was to demonstrate two things. The first being to express opposition to the policies and Amanda as Donald Trump. And the second is to create a foundation for truly cross-sectional activism for everyone who opposes the policies of our current Republican government. It's providing a springboard for wide-reaching activism that is coalescing around but is not limited to women's rights, particularly when it comes to reproductive choices, awareness of sexual assault and rape culture, LGBT rights, immigrant rights, immigration reform, workers' rights, etc. I think this is important because it's bringing together groups that have generally had separate goals and while many such groups sometimes work together, such cooperation seems to be increasing dramatically. Organizations such as the NAACP, the Human Rights Campaign, Planned Parenthood, and so many more are joining together with even more new groups and activism to try to affect change in this country and roll back or hinder the destructive policies of the Republican Party. I will have a link in the call notes to womensmarch.com. It also appears that this activism is bearing fruit. If what happened this fall is anything to go by with the gains made by the Democrats in Virginia and New Jersey. I will go into more detail about the importance of local elections in a later episode. Let's go from a high point to a low point. And I know I'm skipping quite a few months here. But first, a quick background. Way back in 2008, there was a guy named Paul Gottfried, a paleoconservative philosopher and founder of the H.L. Mencken Club. He was the first person to use the term alternative right for what may be the first time in modern context. Though Richard Spencer, Nazi extraordinaire, also wrote a piece in Taki's magazine at around the same time and claims that they co-used it or co-discovered it together. Tacky's Magazine is ostensibly a libertarian conservative online publication. Uh, Spencer wrote about the intellectual bankruptcy of neoconservatism and the need for a traditionalist paleoconservative rebranding so they can rise to more prominence in mainstream culture. So, to dispel a couple of mischaracterations, no, the term alt-right isn't a pejorative created by leftists, nor is it a leftist ideology itself. Sorry, Prager University. Now that I got that out of the way, fast forward to the Unite the Right rally that took place in Charlottesville, Virginia. The rally was in protest of the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee from Emancipation Park, but was organized and run by outspoken white nationalists and neo-confederates on August 12th. What happened was that a member of American Vanguard, a neo-Nazi group, plowed his car into a group of counter-protesters, killing one Heather Heyer and injuring dozens more. Thankfully, he was captured and is now awaiting trial. Apparently, he mentioned online that it was a possibility they will use his car as a weapon against leftists, so now the charges have been upgraded to first-degree murder. I personally hope the charges stick and he will never see the outside of a jail cell for the rest of his life. 
I will not dignify him by mentioning his name. I also want to mention that the white supremacists at the rally came loaded for battle, carrying guns, shields, and other weapons, and using them in at least one case with Klansman Richard Wilson Preston, who fired his gun into a crowd of counter-protesters. In addition, the crying Nazi, Christopher Cantwell, who was profiled by Vice News, is currently on house arrest awaiting trial on weapons charges from his actions at the rally. I also cannot help but mention what happened to Deidre Harris, a black man who was assaulted by six white supremacists after one of them, Harold Ray Cruz, tried to spear one of his friends with a Confederate flag. Cruz is a member of the League of the South, a white supremacist Southern separatist organization. Cruz and the League then turned around and went to a local judge to get Harris arrested for unlawful wounding right before the beating. Thankfully, the charge has been downgraded to assault and battery, and hopefully Harris will be exonerated of even that in the near future. The aftermath of this violence is what concerns me the most. First is the response from the president. Trump decided to not bother condemning the white supremacists unequivocally for almost two days, rather blaming both sides as if blame belongs to everyone involved. Then, when he was forced to condemn the Nazis, KKK, and other white supremacists on Sunday, he then partially retracted that on Monday, turned it completely around, doubling down on the all-sides-are-bad rhetoric, even going so far as to say is that there were good people on both sides. The alt-right expressed approval of his handling of the situation. In a rational world, this should have ended the president's career. He should have been roundly condemned by the Republican Party. Instead, you have tepid condemnations or Republicans themselves rationalizing his behavior. Simply put, this behavior shows the type of man Trump is. He is categorically unqualified to be president, and is a complete racist asshole. The alt-right are both emboldened and driven partially on the ground from Charlottesville. I think the next few years will determine if they actually become a continuing force in American politics. Continuing on, one thing that is a saving grace is that the Trump administration and Republican Party have been hampered a bit on the legislative front by their own incompetence at least until the end of the year. However, in spite of this, throughout the year, one of the constantly underreported stories is that Trump has been rewriting the rules for how the executive branch does its job, eliminating many Obama-era regulations and guides from wetlands protection to overtime rules for federal contractors. This includes scrapping a directive to protect the rights of transgender students, to increase the limits of greenhouse gas emissions for coal power plants, uh, revoking DACA, etc. There is a lot of detail to get into here, and I'm trying to just do a quick overview. I feel like this particular subject can be delved into through several episodes in the future. However, things have been heating up this year with Mueller's investigation, particularly with Flynn and Papadopoulos pleading guilty and apparently turning over state's evidence and testimony with both Manafort and Gates being indicted. This seems to be leading to investigations into the finances of not only Donald Trump, but his son Jr., Ivanka, and Jared Kushner. I have faint hopes that this may lead to a possible impeachment, because to be frank, I don't think the Republican Party 
is ethical enough to even attempt to do this to their own president. So we have to pin our hopes on the 2018 elections and hope we can sweep out the majority of Republicans and replace them with Democrats. I really don't want to end out this list this way, but I have no choice. And that is talking about the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. I'm only going to briefly go over this. This act is a monster of a bill. It is huge. Um, but the long and short of it is, within the next 10 years, I'll see maybe up to $500 in tax relief. That's wonderful. The country itself will end up getting $1.5 trillion further into debt over that same time period. And as according to uh, the nonpartisan organizations such as Tax Policy Institute or uh, the CBO. Um, the worst part of it is a lot of the tax reforms aren't even permanent. The one that I just mentioned that gives me $500 expires in 10 years. The ones that give corporate America and those who make over $200,000 tax cut are permanent. So what do we see here? We're seeing a means for the Republicans to do what they said they were going to do in the 1980s, and that is shrink the federal government enough to drown it in a bathtub. They want to eliminate Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and they're finding this is to be a roundabout way of doing it. Not to mention the fact that they also, using this bill, are trying to ir irrevocably damage Obamacare by getting rid of the mandate. I am not hopeful that we would be able to whirl back all the damage they've done, even in 2018. Assuming even the Democrats, with possibly a few Republicans, and we will need a few Republicans to decide, are able to remove them from office, it's no guarantee that the replacement would be any better. And with it being that way, I expect that federal government will be deadlocked for at least the next four years. So now... Uh... We're going to move on to the story segment of uh, the podcast. Um, this is where I'm going to start talking about, you know, current or uh, past stories from past week or two. Whatever catches my fancy, this is going to be what I find interesting at this time. And so for my first story, I'm going to talk about CHIP, uh, which stands for the Children's Health Insurance Program. Brief overview, it's a program that started to fill the gap created in our system by, for low-income families who make too much from Medicaid but not enough to afford private insurance for their child dependents. So here is the latest coming from NPR. Uh, Congress, back in October, being negligent in its duties, failed to fully fund CHIP when it was due October 1st. So they gave it temporary funding in December of $2.85 billion dollars but that's not going to be enough to last all 9 million kids to pin on it, according to the article on NPR and their source, uh, Georgetown University Center for Children and Families. 1.7 million children in 20 states in the District of Columbia could be at risk of losing their CHIP coverage in February. I find that unconscionable. It is horrendous that this is how our health insurance system is set up in this country. I can go on an hour-long rant on this. I won't, but suffice it to say, Congress needs to do its goddamn job. And that job is 
make sure these kids have health insurance. You would think, hey, this is the most basic thing in the world you can do. These children are, they need this health insurance. This is not an option for most of them. We have doctors who are giving away leukemia medication because they're not sure if the uh, kids they're treating for cancer can continue to, uh, their treatments until the cancer is uh, suppressed. You got to understand, childhood leukemia has a very high survival rate when the children get their full treatment. This is a situation that can kill people. We have other kids with chronic conditions such as diabetes um, or heart conditions or any uh, number of childhood illnesses that need continuous treatment. They need a treatment program. They don't need to worry about money. Neither do their parents. You know, we have doctors who are scrambling along with the families trying to figure out whether they're going to have coverage come next month. And I do not understand why it's so complicated for the goddamn government to fund this. It is a program that has a drop in the budget in the federal budget. Yet their priority was what? Tax cuts for the rich and for corporations to the tune of adding $1.5 trillion to the deficit over a period of 10 years versus a few billion to make sure that 9 million kids get to live. And I know, not all 9 million uh, have chronic or uh, deadly diseases or things of that nature. But the fact of the matter is, is shit happens. A lot of those kids do. They need this coverage. From one healthcare story to another, here's an op-ed from Jacobin Magazine titled, Tom Brady is Trying to Kill You. I love this story. Written by Megan Day, it's about Tom Brady's book, The TV-12 Method, How to Achieve a Lifetime of Sustained Peak Performance. As she put it, it's mostly filled with macho gibberish and general ideas about health like exercise and, of course, marketing Brady's own brand of supplements, TB12. Now, I'm not exactly an NFL fan, never have been, and so I have little clues to who Tom Brady is, but this teardown of his book on medical quackery is awesome. See, he's obsessed with hydration to the point of where he claims to be the most hydrated person in the world. Of course, that's not possible. People die from hydrating too much. He's very much alive. Uh, apparently, it's an issue with high school football players. Just when you thought concussions were an issue, you get people like Tom Brady feeding impressionable kids bullshit that can damage their health. Too much of anything is bad for you, even water. But Tom Brady and his business partner, Alex Guerrero, have electrolytes to sell you so you can maximize your hydration and, of course, remove toxins. Because that's all the rage these days. His partner has claimed to be a doctor and that supplements can cure things like cancer and AIDS. He's such a piece of shit. Uh, I highly recommend reading Megan Day's article. Link is in the call notes. Now for something a little different. Uh, I want to report that Steve Bannon has stepped out from Breitbart News Network, the nutty right-wing news website. He left after being publicly humiliated by Trump and after helping Rory Moore lose the Alabama Senate seat. And then he, and then he called Trump Jr.'s meeting with the Russians treasonous. 
Trump has been ridiculing him by calling him Sloppy Steve because of course he has. Our president has the emotional maturity of a 12-year-old. According to NPR, CEO of Breitbart, Larry Soloff, said that Steve is a valued part of our legacy and we will always be grateful for his contributions and what he has helped us to accomplish. Translation, he's a loose cannon who pissed off the Mercers, our only major source of funding, so he's out. This doesn't surprise me. Steve Bannon is alt-right and serving as a distraction for the Republican agenda of trying to push through deregulations, immigration reform, and to fuck up Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. And now, apparently, Bannon is going to talk with Mueller about the investigation. That's going to be very interesting. I hope the transcripts are made public someday soon. Onto a story that I feel isn't reaching enough people that I came across recently. From the Economic Policy Institute, a story about a regulation change in the Department of Labor that would allow employers to take workers' tips from them as long as those workers make minimum wage. By their estimates, $5.8 billion will be taken from workers and pocketed by their employers, $4.6 billion of which would be taken from women who work tip jobs. Even now, when it's still illegal, up to 12% of tip workers have had their tips stolen by employers in major American cities. The fact is, this is legalized theft. When I tip someone, I fully expect them to be able to keep their damn tip. Employers will take advantage of this rule change and try to keep as much money as they can. They may even go so far as to penalize workers who keep tips unreported. Most of these workers make with tips well above minimum wage. This will represent a drastic pay cut and can make basic needs unaffordable. In a capitalistic system such as ours, greed is rewarded. Corporations and employers try to maximize their profits and workers suffer by having the value of their labor taken from them even further because of this deregulation. Deregulation is lauded as necessary to stay competitive by slashing workers' tips today's wages tomorrow, benefits next week, some people think that socialists want class warfare. What they fail to realize is that class warfare is already going on, with employers attacking the working class at every opportunity. So now on to what would be my mailbag, uh, responses to suggestions, arguments, and topics of discussions from my listeners. Since this is the first episode, I have yet to release it. No mail yet, but in the future, I will respond to emails I find interesting or informative in the future. This will also be the section where I will thank my new patrons for contributing to my podcast, which reminds me, my Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash gateway to the left. If you find the content I make adequate, I implore you to give me money. Doing so will help a lot and I will be able to do more to improve the show. In addition, if you have any comments or suggestions, shoot me an email at gateway to the left at gmail.com. All the rest of my social media contacts and show notes are in my WordPress page at gateway to the left at wordpress.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.